What's up, gifted family? Welcome to another episode of the show that is the GP YouTube. Just a reminder that if you support what we do here, make sure to go over to giftedperformance.com and sign up for our automated coaching service. For only a dollar a day, you'll get access to 15 highly customized training programs, a macronutrient calculator, our meal planning feature that lets you build and save meals based on your macros, as well as access to our private Facebook group. All subscriptions help us in continuing to put out great content to get you to your fitness goals. Thanks for stopping by, and without any further delay, let's get into today's video. Enjoy. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of the GPP, the Gifted Performance Podcast, where we give you the information and practical insight to improve your own general physical preparation. Today, I got two brand new faces. Well, Anthony, kind of brand new, relatively new to the podcast and one who's never been here before. I am flanked left, right. Honestly, I don't know how Skype does it. Sometimes it just throws faces all over the place. But I've got Anthony Plaza. Anthony, how you doing today? How goes it? Not too bad. Not too bad. And I've got IFBB Pro, 212 Juggernaut, a lover of all things science. He is team hashtag science in the IFBB world. John Jewett. John, how are things out in Texas? Holding it down? Texas is going great. Thank you very much for having me, guys. My uh, <clears throat> my, my throat's going to give way. I think my allergies have got, are really bad here. We have bad uh, allergens and ragweed. <laughs> so <clears throat> Staying off the streets, staying out of trouble. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Staying clear. Best you can. Best you can. So, John, I, I want to give you a real quick chance just to kind of introduce. Uh, sometimes I do intros and I leave out like very important pieces of information. So I've said, you know, what, I'm going to scrap it. I'm not very good at the intros. I always offend people. So I'm just going to let John just a real quick intro for people who live under a rock, aren't clued in in the bodybuilding world. Let the people know who you are, a little bit about you, your competitive history in bodybuilding, maybe when you got your pro card how your coaching business has come along over the years, all that kind of rundown. Uh, yeah. So currently I'm a, a 212 IFBB pro. Um, I've been competing. I turned pro in 2016 at, at USA's uh, as a heavyweight. And I've done seven pro shows now with this last one being the Olympia. So in 2019, got fourth at the Olympia in the 212 and uh, prepping right now for the current 2020 Olympia. Prior to all this bodybuilding stuff, I was a, a powerlifter. So that's my my true my true background. I, I did that competitively since I was 16 till right around when I was 20, 25. It's kind of got I got burnout a little bit. Um, I got really really strong. I was I was pretty good at it. I um, totaled 1820 in squat bench deadlift. This is like a single single lift uh, um, like single ply. Yeah. We use squat suits and bench suits back then. Now raw is like the cool thing, but um, that was like, uh, you know, squatting and deadlifting a little over 600. And, and I was benching a little over 600 too. You know, a single meet I could bench, uh, I benched 706 was my best. <clears throat> so, but I wasn't that big. <laughs> I like thought I would get <laughs> what like, weight class. Uh, what weight class were you? Well, I, I was 220, but I was most competitive okay. at 198. Um, yeah off like Wilkes and stuff. So, but I still was a, a power lifter look. So I didn't have like a, wasn't really lean or anything, 
But, um, you know, I was strong. I was like, man, I, I just thought I would be bigger by the time I was benching and squatting this much. And I wasn't, and I always loved bodybuilding. That's kind of when I made the transition into, to, to that. But, um, education wise, I always have been kind of a nerd in a sense to just trying to try to better myself and wanted to know like how something worked so I could better apply it to just be a better meathead is all it came down to. You know, I didn't nerd out and bodybuilding came second. It was kind of the other way around, but, um, so yeah, always had kind of looked at like the whys behind how things worked and try to better apply them. And that just led on to um, getting my bachelor's exercise science and then later on getting my master's in nutrition, becoming a registered dietitian and just uh, still nerd out on all the, the science of things. Yeah, I think it's pretty rare to find someone who's an action, who is an RD. I know maybe it's something about the 212 division. You I, and I think Chris Tuttle is also an RD as well, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he is. So throw it down on the podcast right now. Who's the better RD? Who is the king of 212 RDs? Does it go by Olympia placing? Uh, yeah, it might as well because that way it biases towards me. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. So um, walk us through kind of who you've worked with in terms of coaching and influences on you as a competitor and you as a coach. I believe you're working with Andrew Vu right now, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's my current coach. And I, my first coach ever was actually Shelby Starnes. And when I was in my bachelor's program, we had like a 360 hour practicum to do. And I did my practicum with Shelby. So I was like, I want to be an online coach. And I contacted him and he kind of like took me under his wing to, to learn some. And it, a lot of it came out to me kind of like writing this uh, carb cycling approach and powerlifting. And I, we didn't get into a lot of the actual client work, which, which, which I was hoping for, but it was like our, his first time doing this with me. So we're kind of figured out along the way. But after that, I, I worked with him for a year coaching and I, I was kind of getting into bodybuilding, <clears throat> but it was just more, <clears throat> excuse me, me prepping for my wedding. So I bulked up and then came back down just for my wedding as kind of a, a mini cutting for that. I was, I still probably looked like 10 weeks out and, uh, that kind of ended that I was like, I'm going to do my own thing. And I ended up prepping myself for first three years of bodybuilding and finally got qualified for nationals. And I was prepping, I was like 12 weeks out from, uh, 2015 USAs. Is that the year you did middleweights? Yeah. Yeah. I was a middleweight thought I was going to be a a light heavy, which I, I was just oblivious to like the lack of muscle that I had <laughs> and the amount of fat that I had. So once I got to like 210, I'm like, huh, I'm probably not going to be a light heavyweight. But, but also uh, at that point, I'm like, man, I don't want to leave anything on the table. Like this is super competitive. I need someone that's been there. That's taking people to that level and take some of the pressure off. Cause man, coaching yourself early on, I, I put a ton of pressure to, to do well. Cause the people I was around, I, a lot of them had looked up to me for advice and information. So it's like, I, I put this up like as a test to see um, what, if I could really do it on my own. And people are, it's like, gosh, if I don't do well, people are going to judge me. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And which, which was really ignorant at the time. It's got, cause God, you're just starting out in everything like education and bodybuilding. So um, that's when I started working with Matt Jansen 
<clears throat> and he's like, oh man, I don't know about this timeline. I'm not comfortable with it. Cause I came home like 12 weeks out and, um, we pushed it. It was like a chasing fat loss the whole time. Ended up coming down to like 180, <clears throat> 184. And I was pretty much ready around there, but, uh, yeah, 184 and the light heavyweights, you know, like, um, five foot at seven. the bottom. Yeah. You're kind of on, on the bottom of the class. So he's like, Hey, let's push it down to middleweight. And so we, we really sucked down to make weight and, uh, and did well. I got sixth place at, in, in USA's and I was super conditioned, just kind of just small. And, um, so after that is when I really had a, a great off season with someone that could watch me and not let me, uh, cause I had off seasons where I would do it myself and I'd try to stay too lean and probably made no progress. And I got, had other off seasons where I got way too fat. That was prior to my 2015 prep. I was, I came down from like 2:30, and it was just, it was sloppy 2:30. Um, so I got too fat, died all off, got, it started to taste too lean and not make progress. So finally an off season where we, we really could show me how to maximize all the variables and save me from myself. And, uh, I, I never, I never, I didn't even go up to my heaviest weight I've ever been to. I think I was about 226, 227, um, that off season, but I came back down as a heavyweight and I weighed in at uh, 215. So wow. substantial, uh, size increase, um, which is, it was like just the perfect off season, maximizing every single variable possible. Um, I was a machine, a robot, uh, but also intuitive. Um, I had that knowledge you know, and, uh, asking why so I could dig out the right information to give to Matt and he could assess and, and make the right plan. So it, it was just, uh, all the, the stars aligned and everything to add whatever, like 30, 35 pounds of stage weight on in the year. So Matt was definitely a huge influence in coaching to see how it really should be done as far as monitoring someone, the type of feedbacks that's needed from a client and how that coach takes that information and, and makes those calls. And when it's time, because I, I could always push, but when, when it was time to pull back was like the key component that I didn't really uh, monitor as much. Um, and most of us always want to just go harder. And, and it seems like working harder will usually get more of the result, but it wasn't always the case. It's like less is more now that you figured that out. It's like less is equals to more eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Less can definitely be better. And that's not our mentality at all. It's right. like, uh, some of the topics we'll cover today, like train to fail, like, yeah, yeah. Train way past failure. That's even better. It's like, yeah, it's not, <laughs> it's not, uh, yeah, it's not always better. Or like, it's same thing of like, when should you do a, a refeed day? It's like, oh, well not doing refeed days is harder work. So let's not do that. And well, you don't see people really arguing that point. They're like, oh yeah, refeed days. We should do more of those. Um, but yeah, anyway, so yeah, working with Matt, um, uh, I turned, did my pro debut with Matt and, and did, uh, a sec, another, my second pro show with Matt too. Then after that, I, I wanted to go back to doing my own thing. I, I, I'd had this drive of like learning so much and I love applying it to myself. I love, I've always done all my own like programming and training. So I, um, did two, uh, Dallas Europa on my own, my peak after New York, did my whole off season had to completely kind of revamp the look at 212. So you're stuck at this weight cap and uh, looking at my photos, I'm like, man, I, this might be it for me as a 212. Like I, I got fifth in Europa and 
seventh in New York and fifth at my pro debut. It's like, how am I going to even improve? Because I'm right at the weight cap. So looking at my stage picks, I'm like, I got to bring my waist in. It, it just, I couldn't vacuum. I'm like, I want to vacuum. That's going to be my goal. And, uh, and these other guys just have some smaller waist and, and, and water clavicles. So it's like more lat, more back. That was my goal all off season was trying to improve my waist. I completely changed it um, and gave myself a significant improved taper. And now I can hit vacuums on stage, which was uh, the game changer for 2019, at least I think, because um, it, it changed my look so much. Uh, but I was like four weeks out from the Chicago pro in 2019 where I'm like coaching myself. I was really lean. I'm like, you know what? I, I can do this. Like I had that kind of like self satisfaction that I was like, you know, I, I, I could bring myself in, but I don't want to like limit myself by not having someone else to look, you know, have an eye on me or, or limit my teaching. I, there's some great coaches that just do a phenomenal job. And there has to be something else that I can learn. So I think if I close myself off, it would be really self-limiting. And I had built a relationship with Andrew Vu. And he, he was someone who's a friend who just cared how I did. And that went really far over these other coaches that there's great coaches that, I just, that have great information and knowledge um, that they put out there. But I just don't know them. And to have someone you have that relationship built with, uh, there's that trust there. And so I trusted Andrew. And uh, we started, he took me the rest of the way to Chicago and then Tampa, Olympia, and we're, we're still doing it today. So, and uh, with, with Andrew, he, he's not much of the science nerd like me. So he won't always have the deep why, and, you know, physiological like explanation of all these things, but his experience trumps all. And the proof is in the pudding is people come in super conditioned and he has the experience to know like the right decision to make at the right time. And he might not have that explanation. He's like, I know this works. And when we do it and like it works, it's like, okay. And then I'll have the nerdy explanation to go behind while it probably worked. Uh, so it's a, it's a good pairing, but he has, uh, he has that eye that um, is, is so valuable and his excellent with peaking people because of that eye and watching meal by meal and what to change and, it was in uh, in Tampa. I, I realized how unique that peaking process is because we had he had five athletes there, and I, I saw all of them rotating through the wounds, and, and we were all on completely different um, protocols as far as like who was manipulating water or not, or uh, needed some type of diuretic in place. Um, I had drink. I was drinking three gallons of water every day and did that all the way through the show. That's not really unheard of. There was another guy there that hadn't had water all day, you know, so it, it was all between, but everyone looked on point. And so uh, that was, uh, there's no cookie cutter approach with him. He's, he's definitely catering to the individual and watching them closely and putting a lot of care into the work that he does. So, um, but from all these coaches, I, I'd gained something and they've all been great influences. So I've been fortunate to, to work with, with them all and put it into my own action plan. Um, yeah. Going back to uh, bringing your waist in, uh, you said like that you were trying to concentrate on that, uh, focus on bringing that waist down a little bit. Like, what kind of strategies did you implement for that? Uh, yeah, so I feel like that's a, a huge debate, especially you see a lot of big, big pros that have like these distended abdomens, and they're like, what's causing the distended abdomens? You know, and um, I, I think along the way, just pushing your body weight up really fast. 
and uh, carrying throughout off season with that distension all off season long, I think it just it just stretches out the abdominal wall, and then you're you're not training that TVA to actually be able to pull it in as effectively. Um, then if then also too, I think if you're getting body fat really high, there probably is a propensity at some point where you're having more visceral fat gain. Um, you know, especially in you know performance enhancing drugs, th- there is that greater transition in that in those areas. So that's another further expansion on top of like just high food volumes in the off season, stretching out this abdominal wall. And then I, I've seen uh, research in looking at cross-sectional uh, studies of, of organs, uh, just in and these are natural athletes and people that gain in bulk, having larger organs, and it'd be just it's not like a unhealthy thing. It's a larger person just needs larger organ systems. So the GI tract increases, you know, the um, liver might increase a little bit in size, like all these organs just increase. It's like having an athlete's heart, you know, they, it's not unhealthy, um, but there is this general organ increase. So you have a lot of things increasing in the midsection, but definitely uh, pushing body weight up, I think too quickly. And uh, probably over for these guys overdoing the performance enhancing drugs is, is leading to a lot of that too. So what did I do different? Well, um, one was I am 212, so I had the advantage of not needing to push my body weight way, way up to grow a lot of a lot of tissue. So um, that was always um, a, at least a good point for me. And then uh, making sure digestion was uh, optimized completely. So anytime I had like bloating or gas or felt overly distended. It was looking through the uh, diet and seeing what was causing that. Um, main things that I always found were like uh, potatoes were a big culprit. Then um, I've, I've had to get really selective with vegetable choice over the years. So um, staying away from like the cruciferous veggies. So Brussels sprouts I like, but I don't do, or broccoli, even asparagus after a while has been bothering me. So now I was like down to like spinach and green beans. Um, and then actually training the abdominal. So I, for a long time, I just didn't train abs, which I don't think a lot of people do. But I, I noticed that I my abs once I got dieted down, um, they would be flat. They would be the first thing to go. So when you're up at the stage, they just didn't have any pop to them. It, it it looked like I just wasn't that conditioned, and they just weren't full. And so it's like, well, I should have some type of hypertrophy work in my rectus abdominis to, at least when I diet down, some of that sticks around. So I actually started training abs a little bit. And, uh, but the biggest thing was doing vacuums. Uh, it first thing in the morning fasted, I do them every single day and I would practice just like I would on stage. So going into kind of that, like, uh, hand, hips, um, hands on hips, most muscular shot, like abs crunch down or like your, um, you know, overhead abdominal thigh crunching down the abs. So I would do that, hold it, pulling my obliques in, blow all my air out and then vacuum and hold that as long as I could trying to, you know, suck my belly button to my spine. And, uh, I got really, really good at it. it took a while for it to finally click. Finally it did where I, I just had this control where I could finally like kind of pull, um, the abdomen under the rib, rib cage. And so I started doing that. Then once I got into prep, I started doing it uh, post-training as well and in first in the morning. And that just made the significant difference of, of being able to control my abdomen because I got to a point on stage where vacuuming was just holding my abdomen flat, which is a miserable point to be when you go out on stage. Um, and it was just lack of training, basically. So 
Uh, one thing I didn't do was wear a waist trainer. Um, I, I, I don't think that's, I haven't seen anyone that's worn a waist trainer that's made a significant impact. And I don't think it, it doesn't train the muscles of the abdomen. Uh, if, if anything, you just relax into something and you're not getting that train. You're doing the opposite, right? Um, I've also seen stuff about like compressing the GI tract and people, if you're overusing it, could get, um, run into constipation issues or uh, digestive issues. So, uh, usually people wearing them have always had really small waist and then they wear them and they're promoting them to make money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at least that's what I, I see. I mean, maybe they work for someone out there, but, or I've heard some people make a point of like, oh, well, it keeps me mindful of my waist throughout the day. I hear that a lot. <laughs> and so I, I don't know how I feel about that. I, I can at least speak for what I did and it actually worked and made a huge difference in my waist. And, and main thing was, yeah, uh, pinpointing digestion, uh, making sure I wasn't pushing food excessively and getting my body fat too high and then actually doing like vacuums and waist training. When you touched on pushing your weight really high and you talked, you, you touched on kind of more is better training past failure, all that kind of stuff. I think you made, you made some good points in there. And I'd actually like to get kind of just your overarching philosophy around training as a whole. I think that there's somewhat of a dichotomy in bodybuilding culture right now. There's like team hashtag team pussy, which is what, you know, we're all on. We use reps and reserve and that kind of stuff. And then there's the like, Hey, just pushes to failure every single day, every single session, just continue to add reps, weight, failure, failure, failure. Kind of where do you fall on this debate? Is, is it more nuanced than people make it out to be? It, there's nuance to it, but there's also simplicity to it as well. So I think you can really deep dive rabbit hole in, in, in the research world and get lost and forget the big picture of a lot of these things. Um, I, I, a lot of it, where you lie on this kind of debate, I think also depends on what your upbringing was culture wise and your psychology too. Uh, so I, I came from like powerlifting which we're used to grinding out like max effort loads and, and you know how to push to that level. And I was in by like West side barbell, which had this very much like max effort, like powerlifting approach that was actually fairly close to failure, or at least that's how I understood it when I trained. Um, and so what I connected with well, when I first got in, into powerlifting was uh, for one Dorian Yates and then also DC training. Yep. So those are my first like big influences in, in bodybuilding, which are these lower volume, higher effort intensities. And I, I just truly enjoyed that to go into the gym and have a, a goal and try to attack it. Not that you can't we, with these like reps and reserves or anything like that, but at least that was um, a psychology that really drove me to train and, and, and push farther in my limits and uh, made sharing enjoyable. And I, I think that's in programming, that has to be your number one uh, first starting place is adherence and uh, enjoyability. But then within that too has to be sustainability. So if you have someone that loves training way beyond failure, that might not be sustainable. Um, it could They could adhere to it and enjoy it. But of course, if they tear a peck off in six weeks, well, that wasn't a sustainable approach. So there is some some balance uh, to it. And I feel like some people that are coming through it from uh, this knowledge set and getting them into bodybuilding are, are looking to all the, the science or maybe they, they haven't seen, uh, you know, the failure type training or low volume training working for them. But anyway, so that's that's where I see like there's a psychology to it when you're coming into this thought process 
of uh, what's driving someone to make those those choices. Now, my so my general philosophy now that it's kind of evolved over the years is truly there's a a mixed approach. So um, I believe the biggest things that I want to nail when people first come in is is execution and then also effort. I think you can nail these things and that's going to be some of your biggest driving factors in, in progress. So if I have like a new client come to me, what I, when I'm first looking at is like all their, what they're currently doing. And I want to see how they're actually executing that level of volume. Cause what we see in this current, all this literature is like volume is the main driver in hypertrophy. And I kind of gasp when I say that because you have to really be careful how you define that volume and how you're uh, defining that volume is going to really be determining how much of that volume that you, that you need. So what I want to do first with someone comes is, is make the volume they're doing as effective as possible. I don't want to do more shitty work. And that's not the case. If more volume equals more growth, that does is not what that means. More volume could just be more, more work, could be more fatigue. It could actually be less growth in that sense. So there's a, a spectrum that we need to operate in. But what I want to do initially with someone is have them on exercise movement, uh, exercise that they connect well with, that we, we know will, will give them the, a good prog- way to progress throughout their training, increase loads, increase reps, and then get them to the right effort level they need to be. Most people that come to me can already know how to train to that level because they're higher level athletes. Um, and, and there's some that are, that are lower level. So depending on what that level is, depending on where that effort level should be, because a, a beginner, um, should they be training to failure? So it, that's when you get into these, these black and white areas. And a, a beginner is just going to grow just with the bar when they first start, you know, uh, it's going to be so minimal stimulus that they need to get that growth response. And, uh, the focus should really be on them getting proficient in the lifts that they're doing proper execution and then progressing load and reps up. And at some point as they're advancing, they're going to be approaching closer to that, that failure point. And when they need to, because they, the whole idea is that we need to progress the stimulus in some way. And with the beginner, I, I do think like adding more sets would make sense for them because then they get more time practicing those lifts versus let's keep the volume really low and just push your effort really high. I think for a beginner that that isn't probably the most educated approach to do um, because they're just not ready to execute at that high. They, they could go that that effort, but to to keep the precision in their lifts and safety in place. Uh, they're not ready for that yet. So I think um, that should be the focus, at least within a beginner, and then transition them up. And what I usually see is someone needs to get closer to like a failure point. Usually uh, volume will start coming down because that stimulus per set is getting a lot greater, uh, but also that fatigue generated in each set is much greater too. So at, at some point, uh, that same volume um, amount uh, is the fatigue generated from it is just so great that they end up could just their muscle cycles get cut too short. And so we have to do some program adjustments to to account for that. And uh, then we get to like the advanced level person where you have someone that uh, still needs like a super high stimulus, but that same stimulus per set is just not as great as like the beginner. So, you know, you, I've, I've seen people say like, you know, maybe less than three reps in reserve, maybe isn't that effective for growth. 
and then you get a little bit more effective um, as, as you get closer to failure, but also there for each rep closer to failure, there's a, a much more substantial increase in fatigue. But for that advanced lifter, uh, I think as you get closer to failure or, or further away from it, those lesser even those reps are even less effective than for someone that's an intermediate. So say like a three rep in reserve for an intermediate, maybe you could spur on some growth, but that three rep in reserve for an advanced lifter, that might just maintain them. So they might need to get to that one rep or failure point. Um, but the balance is like, well, should you do every set to failure or all reps in reserve? And I, I truly uh, believe that there should be a mix in place and there's application within both. So for, I'll speak in my, for how I currently execute things is usually I work up to some top set, which is, uh, and since I do like high efforts, usually that is a RIR of maybe one where I can, depending on the lift. So if it's something that's very technical, like an RDL, um, then yeah, RIR is definitely there. Then maybe a back offset is where I might have closer to RIR zero. But as far as like going to a point where I, I concentrically fail, um, it, it's usually more so on my isolation movements where I, I'm, I'm very uh, technically sound and I'm stable and braced. And it's a position where I can do that. And with an isolation movement, the stimulus is very direct, but there's also not a lot of fatigue that's going to be behind that. So compound movements, yeah, the RIR is there in place. And even for guys that don't train with RIR, you still are. It's just a way that we're, yeah. uh, you know, accounting for something that you're doing. I see guys like, oh, no, failure training, man. And they're like, by then I see them squat. And they're like, well, you didn't like crawl out of the squat rack. You know, you still like completed your last rep. So that could be an RR of one or zero. So it's like, oh, man, I don't I don't believe in time. I don't count time. It's like, well, all of us, everyone else does. So it's still 12 o'clock. So it's 12 o'clock for you. You know, um, it's still something that's in place. This is whether you're accounting for it or not. Yeah. But there's a lot of plans out there that don't use RIR, but there's still RIR there. Um, or, or they just address it in kind of a different way. Like, hey, leave, leave one in the tank. And it just sounds like more bro and cool. So you can connect all of that versus saying this RIR thing. But, um, but yeah, so <clears throat> that, that's at least how I... I I'm currently in sets, but when I'm introducing someone into a new training plan, I usually will start in like an RIR of two and, and, and maybe like a set down in volume per exercise of what I want them to be at. So it's like an introductory week, get them used to the exercise order, um, the sequence and setting the logbook and numbers for where they should be that first week. It's completely novel. So usually I already get pretty sore. And then that second week is when I'll move them up to the next volume level that I'd like them to be at for the rest of the meso. And then I start driving up load reps and keep that effort. When I get them up to that one zero RIR is where I like to like to stay. So I'll hold those variables pretty constant for a while in a meso. Um, Cause I, I still see people that can keep improving. And the assumption that every week I have to be adding, adding sets uh, I, I think rapidly accumulates a lot of fatigue and those same sets and RIR, and even if load, even if you use the same load in reps week to week, there's still a very, very good stimulus that can occur. And an advanced athlete, you're not, you're not going to be growing fast, so you're not going to have week to week progressions that are fast. Um, so that it, it should be slower. But you know, along throughout a mess, so if I do see someone that's like, hey, my recovery is, is awesome, like pumps are great, 
Uh, strength is moving up really, really well. You know, you could make the argument of like, hey, I need to kind of test this person to see where maybe that volume threshold is because you don't want to really underdo it. Um, I'm really hesitant to do that though. So I'll really wait and see and manage recovery. I might have them run a whole meso and kind of evaluate it and see where that volume ended up. And then maybe the next one is I'll, I will build them up to like a new level and kind of run that out. So I like to let it play its course over, over mesos versus, um, doing these rapid volume increases. And, and that way I can really be able to say, okay, this meso we're averaging, 10 sets, this one 12. When we did 14, that completely annihilated you in two weeks. So we should probably stay between playing around these other, these other areas. And um, that's, that's typically how I'll, I'll, I'll run volume for people. And I think that that volume craze has kind of, it was very short-lived. It was probably like 12, 18 months there where people were like, okay, just drive volume up from week to week. You know, go from three yeah. sets to four sets to five sets to six sets. And then you realize that by the end of the mesocycle, you're running 200% of the volume that you were running in week one. And a 200% increase in volume is, is something that's almost impossible from by month basis. But I'm actually, I'm actually interested to hear some of the things that you personally, or maybe you do with your clients, um, some of those big rocks that you put in place to make sure that they're recovering from week to week and month to month. Yeah. So, um, a few things that definitely in this common world that get neglected is stress management and sleep. And so those are the, the two tiers I really try to drive home with, with everyone. So I, in my check-in process, I'll have like a check-in log, a daily log that they'll use that'll pretty much hit all these tiers. So I, I think for one, it just keeps people accountable of like, oh, I actually did sleep only five hours this night, six hours this night. Because I used to do check-ins with clients and at the end of the week, they'd email me and kind of be like, hey, type in the summary of the week. And what I end up seeing would be like sleep was good and, <laughs> you know, digestion was good and strength was good. And I'm like, ah, you know, like shit, like if I hear the word good again, I'm going to lose, lose it because what is good? Like for some people, like, hey, if I had a 20 pound PR, like that's good for me. Maybe for them, it was like I maintained my strength or something like, well, that's not good in my opinion or, you know, so. Um, so I had to get something that was a little bit slightly more objective in evaluating their progress. So, so now I have this daily log that they fill out. So it'll have like their uh, daily water intake. I'll have them log their step count, um, also their sleep per night. And then I'll use a perceived recovery status scale, which goes from zero to 10. It's something that's been validated that they've used this one in the literature. Um, basically, that a 10 is like you feel highly energetic. Um, no fatigue present. And then you'd have uh, like a zero being you feel uh, extremely fatigued, no energy, no motivation. And then you can kind of have a guesstimate of like what maybe your expected performance might be for that day. And um, then I have some other like subjective areas that they can fill these things out with too, you know, like, um, you know, where they can evaluate, you know, go farther about like, why was sleep poor that day? Or why, why did you have more stress that day? So off that information, I, so one thing I, I'm much better at tracking it throughout the week and we can get some averages so I can have some running averages of how sleep's trending, how um, their PRS score is trending and uh, make those evaluations. Um, <clears throat> then uh, I do have some auto regulation that I just kind of give to the client. So I'll have a, in their training plan based on like questions. So it's kind of like a, a flow chart for them to decide if they should like back off for the day before they like leave their soul in the gym. 
And it, it's looking at the PRS score, like, hey, is your PRS score less than four? Um, was sleep less than so much that night? Or was stress more today? Um, was meals or fluids off for the day? Right? Any joint pain? And if they answer like like two or more of those questions, yes, then it's like, all right, we're gonna do a light session today, auto-regulated, which will be like just lower volume. Uh, you know, RIR two to three. So it's like a, a quick fix. Because we all have those days where it's, you, you just, you know, within your your mesocycle where it's just a bad day and you probably just shouldn't train, but you force yourself to train. And maybe your next few workouts are crap, but if you saved yourself for that day, you, you could have continued like a successful training block. Um, so that's like just one auto-regulation auto tool I'll give to clients to have in place. But then if I see those days like cropping up, then we, we probably should just go ahead and move that into like a, a deload. Um, now, as far as... How do you get someone to sleep more or, or stress less? <laughs> well, I guess Good luck. Of, yeah, <laughs> it's really individual. I think I think a lot of it's just making some people self-aware, and that that's a big one. And people just walk throughout the day without really thinking about how they feel or um, what might be making them feel that way. Like I feel depressed and sad and unmotivated. It's like, well, why do you feel that way? It's like I don't know. It's, and, and they don't think to think like I I only slept five hours last night, or you know my I'm having these relationship issues or, um, you know, I'm holding on to this, this anger of childhood past problems. And I don't know. Um, so I've had some people use like, uh, before bedtime that have a hard time going to sleep is uh, just a, a journal. Hey, just like brain dump, um, whatever's on your mind, as far as like, maybe it's tasks. Some people just lay in bed and think about all the things they need to do the next day. Or maybe it was like an emotional experience they had for that day. Think back and try to be self-aware of, you know, what happened, what you do in that situation, what could you do better? And just writing those things down at the end of the day kind of gets it out on paper, out of your mind, and can help people like fall asleep better. But then also, you know, I instill like good sleep routine. So uh, trying to have some calm down time, wind down time, keeping your room cold, dark, you know, setting up an environment for sleep. And um, I think at least managing stress and sleep in those areas. Then we get into specifics with what some people might actually have. But um, with all those tools in place, it, it seems pretty good to, to help regulate people's uh, recovery capacity. Um, those are like the, the outside thing. Of course, the main ones, I think, is that drives recovery the most is what you're going to be doing in the gym. Because um, you, you really you, you can't outsleep overtraining or you can't out nutrition overtraining. So training is the, the biggest thing that we can manage to uh, keep recovery in place. I'm pretty sure I've heard Louis Simmons say there's no such thing as overtraining. There's only under eating. <laughs> so you might be wrong. <laughs> the man himself has spoken. I don't question Louis Simmons. So yeah, <laughs> you'd be, you'd be crazy to do so. <laughs> no, I think it's, I think it's always interesting when we have these questions, when we ask experts like yourself, these questions about recovery, it's like, Hey, number one, don't train like an asshole. Okay. Got that covered. We're good to go there. Now let's handle hundred percent the psychology side of things. And that journaling that you talked about, putting all your tasks on a to-do list, writing down negative thoughts. I think, I think that's just a, a really good, a really good strategy there. And I think the people will, will gain a lot from that. Anthony, do you have anything to add there? Um, I just want to ask a quick question. Like, um, for yourself, managing recovery, are you implementing deloads? Are you planning those out? And like, how's your split looking? Like you're doing like a two on one off three on one off kind of thing. Is that how you're kind of managing your recovery as well? 
Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so I'll have like light sessions in place, but I, I'll have to be honest that I'm extremely stubborn with taking deloads, and so I, I've I would go months without taking them, and like progress is like grinding along. I'm like, all right, I added a, two pounds to the bar today. <laughs> it's like, oh man, I just don't, you don't realize how much fatigue that I carry. And, and usually I would run myself to a place where the deload came to find me rather than taking it. And usually it's injury based. And, uh, so that's a lot of the issue I've run into. And eventually I was having to add more rest days, reduce volume, add more rest days, reduce volume to I'm like, man, I, I don't think I'm training enough to even progress anymore. And so, so for myself, I've had to do a lot of things in place to, to correct some movement dysfunction I've had for a long time. And that was really limiting my ability to progress now up in load reps um, and not be reducing my training volume. So now that I've, I've fixed a lot of these other things that I've had, uh, currently my, my split is uh, push-pull. I'll take an off day, legs, and an off day. And uh, what I really will probably be going back to after prep and what I do like in the off season is training about five days a week. And um, sometimes in prep, I, I will shorten my sessions and, and train like six, six days on one day off and just take the same volume out, but just move it to the other off days. So it might be moving like my accessory, like work, like arm work, calf work, ab work to like an off day. That way the session sessions aren't quite as long. So that's, that's a re recovery area that, that I'll do. Um, and, and then, uh, as far as D loads go, then usually what I have been finding is like six weeks is about the sweet spot for me. And whether I truly need it off my checklist or not, I should just do it anyway. Cause I, I don't think there's going to be a hindrance anyway. Uh, if anything, if I still feel good on progressing lifts, I just drop off some fatigue and Hey, no harm done. But it, usually the point is beyond that is where I've run into getting injured or, or something like that. So at this point, I just, uh, I think the benefit is, is way beyond what, what the risk is of continuing to, to train. Yeah. So it sounds like you're more on the side or, or you've moved more over to the side of the proactive deload than the reactive. You're more of like, okay, it's every six weeks. I'm going to be coming around to this. It's, it's a little bit of both still. Um, but to save myself, I've had to be more proactive and I don't necessarily like that approach because if you have some training where you're just really just blasting away, I feel like you should just keep that moving. But at, at the same time, uh, this is at least within myself, I, I should, I should just do it and I'll do more of a, a, a taper sometimes to where I'll, I'll still do like a top set that's hard and, and high, um, high effort, but I just won't do my like back off set. So it'll just be a drop in volume for a week. And I, it, just because it's lower volume doesn't mean I'll I still progress, but I drop off fatigue that I can come back to my previous volume and move forward. And then, then maybe after like, those two six week blocks, then I'll take like a, a true deload. So that's, it, it just, it depends, I guess what, where I'm at and if I'm, how I'm moving. And, uh, I, I've done that at least within prep too, because I don't want to drop off so much stimulus while I'm also in a deficit that I'll, uh, might just have a few days where I just bring volume down, keep effort up and then move back to my, my normal volume level. Yeah. And it, I mean, it makes perfect sense that the, the, the goal of this deload taper, however you want to call it is to drop off fatigue. And there's a lot of ways to drop off fatigue. And I think yeah. 
I, even myself, I, I've made mistakes in the past where I've made deload weeks intentionally far too easy. And it's and looking back on it, it's like, did did we intentionally piss away a week of progress? Because like you said, if, if training is going well and you're, the numbers are going up, why would you stop? Yeah. And, and I've, I've heard people make the points like, well, gosh, if you're training for six weeks and you're not reaching this point of like high fatigue and, and dropping down, then like, have you been doing enough work? And I guess the like caveat to like both of those, like, well, what if you did more work and then made less progress because fatigue got too high or you could just adapt and get better at doing more work and not get more growth. So it's like, well, uh, yeah, I think if uh, there's, there's probably a, a sweet spot there, um, then uh, just, uh, Hey, maybe you should just be, be adding more, but it does bring about the question of like, if you can train that long and just keep feeling good, like, could you maybe do a little bit more and, and get some more growth? Yeah. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you some questions cause you're in prep right now about all things cardio. So, um, I've seen you post on, uh, on your Instagram about kind of how you implement your cardio, your physical activity, tracking meat, tracking steps with your clients. I like to just kind of get your input on how you go about programming out cardio, whether it's your own prep or, or whether it's working with some of your, with some of your clients. Yeah, sure. So w within my own prep, um, so I've always prepped with the Stairmaster for a long time. Uh, for, for one, it was like more of a, a an efficiency thing because um, I would, you know, I used to be a clinical dietitian. I worked in the hospital for eight hours. I would coach people on the side. And it's like, well, you know, I do, I'm active in the hospital, but I still need to create more of that deficit. So I need something that's time efficient. So, and the Stairmaster would definitely accomplish it. Um, it and so I've always catered towards that modality. So I have a Stairmaster at home. Um, but what I usually get up is finding that my legs just get so beat up and fatigued and they swell. And then, um, using my weight starts holding off it. And this was definitely the case in this, this current prep is I, we came back from these shows with Renee and at the same time we bumped cardio. So I was coming off like kind of a weird sleep schedule. Stairmaster cardio got bumped up and then I, I just completely uh, strength way dropped down and like definitely was reaching that like overreach state. And it's like, you know what? I, I have to be done with the Stairmaster. Like being a heavier bodybuilder on the stairs is just pretty oh, yeah. So, um, so now I have a treadmill. So that's what I've been doing for my current cardio. And, uh, it, it's like, I'll do like a 12% incline, 2.8 miles per hour. It's, it's very easy and, um, not very taxing, but within that is I'm counting my steps as well. So you see on my wrist here, this is a knockoff Fitbit. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll track my steps and just being, being aware of that. Um, and my last prep, I only walked outside. And so it was probably, yeah, walking outside, maybe two miles per hour. I was doing like two hours a day eventually on prep. And my step count uh, usually was around like 10,000, 11,000 at its peak. And so just driving up steps was the best thing that I could do to create an energy expenditure with the, the minimal impact on fatigue and training. And so, you know, within a bodybuilding aspect, all you're doing for cardio is trying to expend calories and, and manage fatigue. So the lower intensity you can do, if time permits, I, I think it's a better approach. And if you can split it up into multiple sessions, I think that's even better. But that's always not uh, practical for everyone. So depending on the client, I, I might have to have them do direct cardio work that is a little bit higher effort. Um, 
and, and I do cater more of like, like if you're going to do like a Stairmaster or something, usually like with, with females that are like in the like bikini or something like that, where it, they do just handle the volume and it doesn't tax them and being a low body weight to have them walk on the treadmill. I don't know. You're probably maybe burning 50 calories and, uh, you know, for every, every mile you're going, yeah. which, uh, it just doesn't add up to be, to be a lot when you have someone that does also, you know, doesn't need a lot of food too. So, um, yeah, it really depends on the situation, but for like bigger bodybuilders, uh, definitely if I can just, just start pushing up step count, I think that is the, the ideal scenario for the outcome. The other thing to weigh into that is, is also health though. So just to get, you know, heart rate up. And if you want to be implementing that within the off season, um, I, I like to keep in some type of moderate intensity cardio and just get heart rate elevated beyond just what I'm doing step count wise. Yeah. So what, what does that step count look like in the off season for clients? Do you kind of let them establish a baseline and then just make sure it stays at a good point at 6,000, 8,000, something like that? Yeah. So I, I do kind of see what we can drop their baseline down to. I rather keep them active and moving and then bring down like direct cardio work. Yeah. So if we, so if I can even like do a little bit of both, like push up their step count, Hey, let's get more active. You're eating more. Usually they feel better to move around more too. And, and then if I can bring down direct cardio work and, uh, yeah, I, I usually like, at least for most people keep in like maybe three sessions of 25 minutes at least, um, there's like the rare cases where I have some people that do no direct cardio work, um, because they have like step counts of like 15,000 plus, and then they're also eating like 500 grams of carbs plus. So it's just like, this makes no sense. We want to add tissue on and I, why would I have you do cardio on top of 15,000 steps? And I think just being an active person in general is, is going to be like, have the cardiovascular benefits there for, uh, for health longevity. I think both Anthony and I were also team Stairmaster there for a while. Back in my prep in 2016, it was, uh, it was the 2015, 2016 ish when it was when everyone on the internet, the, the evidence-based crowd, uh, was talking about doing like high intensity intervals for cardio. And it was, I mean, it was exactly what you said. I was done with my cardio. I had burned 400 calories in 20 minutes, but oh my God, my legs and my lower back were just completely blown up after every session. Yeah, I did a little bit of hit um, for, for a couple preps on the spin bike, which was mm. brutal. If you truly do hit, that's even a, worse. It's like a weight training session. And I yep. remember all that research came out too. And that was, I had, I saw programs from people where they did like two hit sessions a day, six days a week. I'm like, how can you do this? So, on top of resistance training, I, I, I don't see how anyone can be doing hit. It's, it's, rare that that someone would in my opinion um but uh i think if you don't have a treadmill i almost lean towards like elliptical and arc trainer as like a second best option just because the impact is pretty low uh, and then like stairmaster maybe maybe from there but uh yeah you gotta also look how these people are doing the cardio because you, you have lazy cardio which drives me nuts so they're like you know you dr- you're like draped over the stairmaster uh-huh. just like, <laughs> yeah. the stair your legs are just like like dangling and dragging over the steps and off to the side <laughs> so it's like well that 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 is a level eight you're on but it's actually like uh, heart rate would be like a level level six on on the, the machine so um yeah so you just gotta see how they're implementing cardio too but uh, yeah, yeah, the hit cardio. Oh, forget it. Especially for for like heavier bodybuilders. Um, I think you just 
probably not get conditioned off fatigue would be, be so high and your resistance training would just take a, a big toll. Yeah. You make, you make a good point when you bring body weight into it. Like some of these lighter bikini, maybe figure girls can get away with, you know, doing some cardio like that on the Stairmaster hit, whatever it may be. But I think back to some of those videos, remember the old videos of like Jay Cutler doing his cardio on the Stairmaster every morning. Oh. He's like 285 pounds on that Stairmaster. Bless that thing for holding up to him. But then you have someone like Ronnie Coleman who would just hop on the stair or the treadmill in his house and walk for like three hours. And he was, I mean, he probably didn't know it at the time. I don't think Ronnie knew much at the time, but he was getting his steps in. He was getting yeah. his knee in. We see you, Ronnie. We see you. It's been so, for, these, for these big guys for a long time. It's like, oh, yeah, you just walk on, on the treadmill. And people are like, oh, no, walking on the treadmill. That's stupid. Science doesn't say that. And then it's like, oh, look, everyone's saying that's what they were doing was right. So maybe, you know, maybe we, can, we can take some antidote from these bodybuilders that have been doing it for years and really, really big and lean. It's like, who should we look to for advice? Well, probably let's, the biggest, leanest guys on the planet. <laughs> let's look to that guy who weighs 280 and his ass looks like a walnut on stage. How about that guy? Let's start there and then we'll peel, up, peel back the layers from there. Um, so you've got when – when, when do you compete? How many weeks out are you now? Uh, eight weeks out. Eight weeks out. So eight weeks out of this recording. So when this goes live, John will be either five or six weeks out. So I'm interested to know what your kind of post-contest period looks like. So Olympia comes around and the Mr. Olympia is John Jewett. Yeah, wow. So in those weeks following, not the week following, because that's probably just madness in terms of the food intake. In the weeks following, what do you kind of do with your food intake? Are you you know, more on the recovery diet side of things? Do you bring calories up by a good amount? Do you go a little bit slower? Because you said you've been kind of on both of the sides, right? You've gone way too slow post-show and you've also gone way too fast. So kind of have you found that happy medium? Uh, yeah, this this last prep, I think I probably, post-Olympia, I think I still stayed too lean for too long. <laughs> um, looking back at picks, I'm like, holy crap, I was still really, really lean. Um, but then that led right into like my next off season period. And it was like a, a, a really productive and, and kept, this was the leanest I've stayed in my off season, but still had like some productive growth. Now I have to caveat that to say like, Hey, I'm, I'm not coming back on like as like two thirty on stage. So when I say a productive off season, it was productive in like trying to stay within the two twelve class. So I, I definitely cannot push food up like someone else would be able to, um, but there is an, an definitely an initial food increase and I, it's usually mimic pretty close to what I was doing, uh, carving up for the show. So like, for example, for like Olympia, um, around 350 grams of carbs a day was a pretty sweet spot where I would be pretty full. Um, it's not a lot of food. And I guess they're like, Oh yeah, you probably do a thousand grams of carbs. Like not too many people are doing that. Um, so that's usually where I start, um, post show. And then I, 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 do th see the benefit and bring body fat up quicker. And, uh, it's, it's taken me seeing that with a few different clients to realize, Hey, the fast push up, um, within those first couple weeks and then slowing it down from there is, is, is a little bit more beneficial. Just being that lean, um, you're just not in a state to, to grow it, and your body's just trying to, to recover hormone functions in the, in the dumps. Like for a lot of people, fatigue's really high. So to think like the week after the show, it's like, I'm going to grow like crazy. It's like, no, you're, you're probably not. And I definitely like can see that in females and uh, how, how vital that post-show period is to just 
kind of just push them up pretty quick. But you have to weigh in the psychology of, of it too, because for some people, it, it's really challenging to add on that body fat and the, for females seeing the scale weight really jump up. So you have to really like preface their, like their prep into this post-show period of like what that expectation is going to be and look like. Cause a lot of people have like those post-show blues and it's a, it's a real thing, especially in females where they're like, Oh, my body fat's coming up. They're still in this poor hormonal state and um, it, it can really, really mess with, with your mind. But um, yeah. So for, for me, initial little body fat increase, but I do stay closer on the leaner side now just because I have to come back down to 212. So it doesn't make sense for me to go way beyond like usually 235 to 240 is kind of where my body is very comfortable at. And um, it's kind of where like you get to and it's like, I'd have to really push food harder to move it up. So it's, it's kind of more of a a good steady state for me to be. Um, But yeah, that post-show period for me, at least it's gotten different over the years. So we're usually super food focused. And I think I've gotten better at managing all my variables going into prep to where I'm not getting down to such low food and such high cardio to where I have all those uh, extreme diet adaptations and just go nuts post-show. So um, I'm just very well controlled. So whatever I need to do post-show, I can do. Uh, but yeah, diff- different situations for some of my other, other clients. Um, and, uh, you know, Renee, I can talk about Renee's post show since that was kind of a recent one. If y'all would want to get into that, but, um, for, for her, like for in all oh, people's in general, like, you know, lose menstrual cycle function. So, uh, estrogen is a very anabolic hormone of females. So I think restoring the menstrual cycle is very important for, uh, all these female competitors. So, um, pushing her food up quick with a quick bump, uh, you know, and we, we got her body fat up. Um, she probably got back up to like 20, 21% body fat pretty, pretty quickly within the first like three weeks. And then by like the fourth week, like she had already started her, her menstrual cycle again, which kind of lets us know that fatigue drops down, cortisol stop, drop down. You're having like good pituitary signaling and like estrogen, progesterone is functioning again which are all good things that mean you can finally get into a spot where you'd be productive for, for growth. And so that, that initial bump for her, I think was, was beneficial and just let her know, like, I promise you body fat gain will slow down at some point and uh, just to just be okay with it now. So now, you know, you, you get to the stable level where you can see like sleep improved, menstrual cycle is, is restored. Um, there's no food focus. Hunger kind of comes back down. You're like, all right, you're no longer in this period. And now you can be more in a productive off season. And I think if I, you stretch that out, like some people reverse over like eight to 10 weeks, I think you're just prolonging the deficit and you're keeping that low energy availability. So maybe food's higher, but still body fat's low. You're still not able to get completely restorative in, in like hormone function and remove all of those adaptations that have happened on prep. So I think a little faster and being more aggressive is where I've leaned more towards uh, now. I used to think a little differently, but definitely more aggressive now. Yeah, I, think, I think you make a good point when you talk about for the contest prep diet, getting body fat back quick is the most important part. And I think that what you're talking about is kind of that like Wayne Norton reverse diet version 1.0, where food was added extremely slowly to where the deficit is still large, even coming out of the diet. 
and maybe for a general fitness client, a general population client who just finished a, a diet where they lost 15 pounds and, you know, they, they feel better. Maybe a reverse diet can apply there because you can still kind of squeak out some fat loss on the back end while calories are going down and they think you're a magician. But for the contest prep dieted individual, that's slow. And I've, I've done it too. I gained uh, coming out of uh, 2015 show, I think I gained four pounds in two months post show. <laughs> I was so controlled. But like you said, how much growing did I do? Probably none. I probably even set myself back. Yeah, it, it definitely like, like the point you made, it kind of depends where you're, you're starting from and what division you're in. You know, if you're like, say for female, that there's kind of the extremes is like women's physique and your glutes are striated versus your like bikini or wellness. And you, you know, you just have a, a nice like athletic look. Um, that reverse might not be as extreme. Maybe that, and then it's individual too, because that same bikini girl might have to do just as something extreme as like physique girl to get her glutes just the same. Right. And so maybe she has a much higher base point that she needs to get to, or maybe she's that genetically blessed person that just walks around bikini lean year round. And, uh, she has like no adaptations occurred. Um, so it, it, yeah, it depends on what division you're in, where you're starting from. Uh, maybe some people don't need as much of a bump because you know, they're not as d- deprived as someone else. Uh, so yeah, just, just depends, right? <clears throat> yeah. Um, so, you know, coming back to Renee, how, how do you think the contest prep went overall? I think, uh, Anthony, Anthony was in Tampa and saw yeah. her and then we were both at junior USA's and, and we both saw her. I, was of the opinion that she was going to win junior USA's. I think you were sitting a couple rows in front of me. Okay. I, got to, I got to see your reaction when, uh, when that didn't happen, which was, I, I think you and I had similar reactions. It was kind of a throw your hands up in the moment or throw your hands up in the air kind of moment. So just how do you feel about the prep as a whole? How do you think it went? Uh, the prep as a whole, the, the process of prep was, was excellent. I'm, I was, I, I couldn't be more happy because it's like, what, what better coaching could you do when you have someone that just lives in with you? Right. Um, so I, I can manage every single variable and, and pick up on anything that she was, uh, you know, giving as far as like feeling too fatigued or you know, I can monitor just super close, which you know, I have, you know, people ask me like, how do you coach your own wife? Like that seems like chaos. And, uh, for, for us, it, it's not, um, Cause we got together when I already was a bodybuilder or I already was a coach. So I think she, she already kind of saw me in that light. I think a lot of people start coaching their wives and get into bodybuilding later on. Their wives never see them as the coach bodybuilder. They see them as the husband that's telling them they're like fat. And, they need to get <laughs> and, and so uh, we never had that aspect, but um, also we tried to separate the two a bit. So she would still like email me updates and photos and then I would change your plan and send it to her. So at least like our face-to-face interactions were like husband, wife. And then we, I would have plan adjustments and feedback, like email, like, you know, and so she'd be like, well, you, you know, I'd be like, yeah, you better talk to your coach about that. You know? So, <laughs> uh, so it kept a little separate, but at the same time, we're, we're both, um, pretty, pretty level-headed, calm, um, not don't have like exaggerated emotional reactions to, to situations. So it's uh, at least easy in that front. But, um, she, um, we got her to a great spot from the off season. I think that's what really, really made her prep excellent is, uh, she was diligent in following the plan off season. She really drove up her, her numbers in the gym. We picked some lifts to just progress on and she just nailed it. Like RDL comes to mind. Cause she was, she went from like 200 pounds for 10 on RDL to like 
almost 300 pounds for Tinder RDL, which is like insane. Um, but I, I would expect she probably put seven to eight pounds of, of she I haven't been on stage, but I would say stage weights because uh, it really did change her look. But her peak like starting point of prep, um, she was like she was having some high days, of, like 300 grams of carbs, like 180 protein and 40 fats. And then uh, moderate would be 180. Then her lower days were like 130. So that was like her starting point, which was good. And then um, she started prep in January, which this is like pre-COVID, right? So we're like, yep. all right, I'm gonna do. We're gonna do a show like in, in early June. Gave her 24 weeks to prep. It was moving along great. Um, I think I had her up to like. 60 minutes total cardio, which was stairs, but for her, that doesn't impede her weight train. So that was one thing to kind of, to manage, like, hey, is the stairmaster going to beat your legs up? Cause she could just go walk. Um, but it doesn't, it keeps her time efficient. So, um, I eventually brought her down to like 130 grams of carbs on five days of the week. And then I would do two days and bring her back up to 230, And that just kept her moving for weeks and weeks. I didn't change her plan for a long time. But then, then COVID happened. Her shows got canceled. So we did like a six-week diet break, which was probably a good thing because I raised food up. She kept that same conditioning. And then going back to dieting, she just like peeled back the rest of the way and got super lean for Tampa, which was probably too lean, I, I think, it, like looking back. But we loved the look. We thought it was so badass. I think I messaged you after that. And I was like, dude, that's the epitome of wellness right there. That is exactly what I think it should be right there. Yeah, because she would pose a little bit and she'd have like some glute lines. And I'm like, holy shit, like this is what they said not to do. <laughs> and uh, that was some of the feedback from Tampa that she was a little bit too hard and then her upper body was too big. And I think it was how, how we were, because she would like kind of like throw that lat out and shoulder and she had a lot of pop to her delt and comparatively to the other girls, it, it stood out a lot. Um, so going to junior essays, softened her up a little bit, brought body weight up like three pounds. Um, but there was this kind of a mess of situation. She ended up having like some, some injury um, within like her serratus posterior and probably something with her TBA. Like she couldn't vacuum as good. So she, she was in a lot, like very, a lot of discomfort on stage. And um, then we posed the same out there and she, like with a fuller look and posing the same, she looked like her stage pic, she looked huge. Like when I look back, like one of the judges feedback, he, he messaged us. He said, yeah, her upper body looks like WPD big. I'm like WPD big. Cause I look at Renee. I'm like, you're not at all. Like you're not at all. So, um, we're like, you know what? We should just, uh, North Americans is, is in five days. Like, let's just do it. Like you're already, you know, conditioned. Let's change your posing. So we just changed her front pose and just, uh, the girl that won junior essays, um, she had a pose where feet were kind of more staggered and like her, it was allowed her upper body to kind of like pin her scapula back and not flare her lats. And we were her hair. This sounds all, all silly, right? But it makes a difference. We like um, we were her hair like curly and over her shoulder to hide it. And they were like the judges were like that nailed it. You know, that was what we were looking for. So, yeah, her whole prep was awesome. Solid. Now you uh, talked about doing like high, low and moderate days. Um, I noticed you do that too. Um, but do you keep that, do you implement that in the off season? Cause I know like early in prep, um, before they push the Olympia back, 
you were kind of doing some carb cycling as well. So, um, do you kind of implement that also in the off season? Uh, yeah. So for most, it's like for, for most clients, like I'll, I'll still cater higher days on training days and then off days are a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. It, it's not something so vast though right. that, you know, it, it probably coordinates well with maybe what training expenditure is, which for some people's, it's really not that much for others. It is like, I, I feel like, you know, I'll, I'll be in the gym for nearly two hours, start to finish, not training the whole time, but, um, but my energy expenditure is vast on those days. So there probably is like maybe an 800 calorie difference from high day to low day. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and then also at least within my situation where I have a weight class cap that I, I try to allocate a lot of surplus into, uh, weaker body parts. So my overall surplus, like if you average it out for the week is not that high because for one, like growth rate is going to be lower. And, uh, so I'll have higher days on like my push days, which is usually the area that I'm trying to improve more shoulders. And then the other days will be run a, a little bit lower. Gotcha. Uh, now you, I mean, you, I definitely understand the point of like, Hey, you average out the calories. It probably doesn't make a difference. And, uh, I, I can't, I don't have a good argument back for that. Uh, but an- anecdotally, I think it does. And I, I seem to, uh, stay good, more like responsive to food and, and better insulin sensitivity. That's and what I, I was going to ask. See, you know, um, there's a whole thought about insulin sensitivity. If it's maybe it's really managing like inflammation more from like high food intakes and the inflammation is kind of what drives down insulin, uh, sensitivity. That's a lot of what I, I believe. Um, but, uh, and then on like my off for a little bit too, which I think has some longevity and health aspects too, and can maintain some insulin sensitivity and decrease inflammation, oxidative stress. So like my off days, I'll only do five meals and I won't eat my first meal for like 10 o'clock. Now don't take that as if you're trying to put the most mass on as possible, that probably might not be your approach, right? So this is very situation specific to me. Um, I, I think you, you probably would at, at some point need to be pushing food high every day to, to be the biggest as possible. And those high days are probably become your normal every day because you just get to a point where you're, you're stagnant. I have clients right. that are like that where you, they're doing 800,000 grams of carbs almost every single day. Then every now and then we'll, we'll have a day where, hey, let's let's do like a day of just protein veggies and fast and try to reset like hunger, queuing. And uh, before we actually need to pull back and do a whole resensitization period in, in, in total. Gotcha. Guys, put pen to paper here. John Jewett, you heard it here first, just said that fasting is anabolic. It will make you as big as you That's, possibly yeah. can be. <laughs> Definitely uh, catabolic. <laughs> yeah. No, John, circling back to wellness, just real quick, I just wanted to get kind of your opinion of the division as a whole. I think when, I think everyone was really excited when this division came out, there were a lot of girls that got super excited. They felt that they could fit into that division a lot better. Do you think it's the division kind of that we were promised when it was debuted by the NPC? Or do you think that within its first year, um, we've really seen a shift in kind of the dredging criteria? Uh, actually, no, I, I feel like they've held true to what they want, but they're just limited to what they're presented with. So you have a lot of like, um, smaller shows, qualifier shows. I mean, they're letting everyone qualify for nationals because there's just not a lot of people competing just yet. So I, I've seen some shows where the wellness girls show up and like, Oh man, everyone gets upset about it. Like this, this is what wellness is going to be. It's like, that, that's just what was available at that show to be judged. And so you might have a girl win that 
that doesn't fit the criteria well. But they've set it off of the like NPC News Online exactly what they want, and, and the girls that they posted on there are girls from that are already wellness pros in Brazil and in Europe that have been doing this. And I, I know like uh, like JM Mannion, like he was at North Americans. He only came to watch wellness. And he's been like avidly trying to get the European and Brazilian competitors to come into IFBB because he wants to build up that division just as they see it. And so I think you just need that pool of competitors to build up more to where you really see that lineup. Um, Because the the, uh, pro show, the first pro show they had in Tampa for wellness, um, you just didn't really have any true wellness pros. It was like, you could tell like the, like that was a bikini pro and that was a figure pro and that was a, a WPD pro and, and none of them quite fit the criteria. Well, I think that's why they don't have any more wellness pro shows for the rest of the year is because they want to actually have some people turn pro build up that, that divisions more. So when you see your first like wellness Olympia, it's representative of what they have in mind for the division. But, um, all the feedback, like, when, when you talk to Tyler or Sandy about Renee's pictures, um, all their, their feedback or tier aligns right up with what they put onto NPC news. Like they, they definitely want like it, you know, a developed lower body, especially glutes. Like for the division, you're not going to have probably big enough glutes. And that, that doesn't, don't think if you have glute implants or like fat transfers or something like that's not it either. Cause that's not going to win. I see people walk on stage with that. It's, it's freaking ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but in it's uh, definitely like a, a upper body that's probably more on par between bikini and figure somewhere. But uh, honestly, like from the wellness girls, I think their lower bodies are bigger than WPD girls. Um, so that's probably like the combination look and the conditioning still where it should be maybe bikini and look at pro level bikini, not just your local show bikini. But you should have like good, like solid glute hamstring separation. But even some of the Brazil pros that I've seen, like some of them still have a little bit of like glute line popping when you see them move around, like, you know, so uh, that condition should be there. But I think the division is rapidly going to head where they want it to, opposed to some of the other divisions we brought in, like like when Men's Physique started, like it, yep, it looks complete, completely different now. Um, I don't feel like you'll see that because this, the, the pro ranks are already established in other federations and that's what they want. And those girls are like on their way over here. So it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's moving, moving quick. <laughs> Good. You love to see it. Well, John, we want to, we want to be respectful of your time. So I just want to give you a chance at the end of this to talk about any projects you have going on right now, let the people know where they can find you, um, on social media, where they can fill out coaching applications, anything like that. Yeah. Well, well, currently I'm not taking on any more clients till post Olympia. And I had a, put a cap on client work and, uh, I feel like you, you, hopefully, hopefully all coaches do that at some point uh, before quality drops down. That's never what I want to happen because uh, I'm working a lot of my other con my project doing content for J3 University. So this has been something that I've wanted to do for a few years now. It's it's been just a real pain in the butt. I've had a lot of fall throughs and, and web developers and just not with the right person. And finally, I got linked up with uh, Mark Fox, who does he does um, the hypertrophy coach. Website Joe Bennett's. He does Train by JP's website. He also does uh, Matt Jansen's website. So all successful websites. So we're developing an education platform that is all bodybuilding, all physique competitor in general. And so what I've found limited 
in what I do is usually I'm repeating myself with clients over and over and over and trying to teach each person and more people want coaching. So I wanted eventually, initially a site where I could just have resources for people to learn. Um, how do you take your pictures? You know, how do you regulate your things that we talked about today? How do you regulate your volume or your recovery? What do you do if it's not, if you're not recovering, what's the thought process and the why's behind those things? And so this has been in my mind to, to put together some type of resource for people. And so that's what J3 University is going to be, is uh, like a university type site where you can go through a curriculum, learn how to apply the psychology and bodybuilding, uh, regulate your fatigue, hypertrophy training, um, moderating health, the whole aspect, PED usage, uh, contest prep, off-season, post-show, like you, you name it, it's going to have everything on there. And, and then I'll have some, initially when I first launched, this is going to be like a six-month curriculum. And then I'm going to branch into probably doing some advanced level stuff where we, I, I want, I don't want people to come in and be bogged down by science, you know, like going yeah. deep down on, on like a rabbit hole of like the physiology and you, you leave without any practical application. So the first, uh, Section is going to be some science of what you need to know, but a lot of like practical takeaways of how to apply it. Then my advanced stuff is like going to be like the rabbit hole for people that want to go deep down of, of whatever it may be. But that's been uh, something I'm, I'm super excited about. And, and what I love to absolutely do is to, to read nerdy stuff and then tell it back to people <laughs> and help, help them help themselves. And so we have planned to launch around Olympia uh, that is, is, is really aggressive because in, in prep, it's been, it's been hard to keep me putting out this content, but it, it's going to be coming pretty close ar- around that, that time period. But, uh, to stay in contact with me, you can, uh, go to my Instagram. That's where I am most active at John Jewett three. And then I also still have my contest prep series that I pr- uh, put out through animal. So that's on the YouTube, uh, channel for, for, uh, animals page. Um, animal pack and uh, that's like a monthly thing that we do for my it's turned into a volume usually it used to be weeks out but since we're, <laughs> co- we're like we don't know so it's like all right, volume three <laughs> but uh yeah love it awesome definitely very excited to see what you got cooking with that j3 university um anthony where can the people find you uh at only a fans. underscore yeah only fans <laughs> a <laughs> underscore j underscore plaza that's where you can find it. one place in one place only only instagram i don't do facebook <laughs> as always i am at the underscore squat father often imitated never duplicated you can find me us at gifted performance send us your dms thanks for coming by thanks for watching we will see you on the next one and as always guys stay gifted see ya